history lecture number 87. And uh, I don't necessarily plan these things. That's a Kaddish Baruch Hu's business. But the number 87 we're about to hear is going to figure at one point in this year. So see, see if you can find it. Uh, this is Rabbi Blyweiss. The, um, it, we then rounded the corner. You know, not quite at the time. I'm sure they weren't conscious in so many, in so many words that this is now a new epic. A new, uh, a new, a new era, but with all the d d dynamics that we describe, and with the so-called Renaissance, with the uh, Protestant Reformation and the uh, printing press uh, revolution, and the um, times of geographic and intellectual exploration and discovery, and the uh, the requisite the messianic spirit that that brought. Yesterday, we talked about the various. Um, harbingers of some sort, some uh, presumed messianic era that never quite panned out. Um, I, I mentioned that the maiden of Herrera, she, she was not well known, and you know she wasn't the prophetess. She just the people around her heard her and said, "Oh, she must be a Navia. She must know what she's talking about." Which you could understand at different points in history, especially when the Jews were in desperate situations, that they might come to that mistakenly. Um, there were also some great Jews uh, at this time. A couple of very brief uh, mentions. Uh, there's a figure named Rabbi Eliyahu Mizrahi, who was one of the refugees of the expulsion. His dates are 1450 to 1526. Um, he would go from Spain to Turkey and lived in, at the time, now it really is Turkey. This is um, not many years. We didn't mention this so much in history. Uh, it came up a while ago, but the ancient empire of Byzantium finally uh, fell into pieces and in 1453 would be taken over by the Young Turks and turned into the Ottoman Empire. And um, from Spain, many Jews moved to Turkey and the Chachambashi, which was the traditional figurehead role, the Chachambashi of, of um, well, at the time now it's Istanbul, but Jews don't always like the... Uh, Jews don't always like the uh, terminology and the city names that have associations with the Bodhisattva. So the Jews called Istanbul, I told you this once, I mean, remember? What was formerly Constantinople, then Istanbul, the Jews called Kushta. Kushta. So in Kushta, Rav Eliyahu Mizrahi becomes the Chachambashi. He's referred to as the Re'em or the Mizrahi. Um, probably his most famous work is a super commentary on Rashi, one of the most pronounced. There's actually, there are a few different versions of this, but there's a Sefer that contains most of the primary commentaries on Rashi, on Chumash. Uh, who would you think of, or what would you go, if you, want, if you were stuck on... Uh, you would you'd go, well, in many of the contemporary Mikros um, Kedolos, you have what's called the Ikar, Sifte Chachamim, which of course is a um, a condensed, abbreviated version of the, which commentary? The, appropriately enough, Sifte Chachamim. Since Ikar means the main parts of the Sifte Chachamim, you might also look in the Gur Aryeh, which was a classic written uh, not long from now by the Maharal of Prague, by the Maharal and the Mizrahi. The Mizrahi, we will certainly talk about the Maharal. Okay. Uh, the, um, and, and, the, uh, and the Mizrahi is one of the primary commentaries on Rashi, on Chumash, and he has another perush on Shas. Um, he's, he, gets, he has some interesting uh, uh, things that come up in his life. He maintained the Easter. He writes about the Easter of marrying Karaites. You remember that historically around this period, the Radbaz, we're going to meet today, um, the Radbaz was makil with the Karaites if they are sincerely repentant. But the Re'aim disagrees and says, no, no, you can't marry them. They have the problem of being Suffolk Mamzer. Remember this? Suffolk Mamzer. And um, yet, he also was lenient. He said, if they come and they want to learn from you and they're genuine, you can teach them Torah. And um, that was controversial because many of the Jews were of the mind still that the Karaites were just poison, were trafed and toxic, and you should have nothing to do with them. And uh, because he had this lenient view that you could teach them and be makar of them and bring them close, um, he was put into cherem by other elements in the Jewish world. So uh, it's not it's not just in our days that we find uh, gedolim who are put in cherem by other Jews for what are perceived moderate views. Uh, another interesting figure from this time, another refugee of the Spanish expulsion, is Rav Yossi from the Spanish town of. Saragossa, 
who, when, when the, he was born in 1460, when he's 32, he's exiled with everybody else. He travels with his family through Sicily and Beirut, and then Sidon, Sidon, on what we in today's Lebanon. Finally, he settles in a tiny mountain community in, in um, the Galilee that's up until now not been that prominent. Little, little tiny like Jewish village without any Torah personalities of distinction until Rav Yossi gets there, and it's Sfat. Correct. It's the first time Sfat. Uh, well, it's not really the first time it's on the map because in the in the um, days of the Baishani in the Talmudic times, um, it was one of the with two points of interest. It was one of the sites of the Masuos as they burned fire on the mountaintops to get the word out that Kiddush Shachodesh had taken place in Yushalayim. So the Yushalmi tells us that Sfat was one of the mountains, and it makes sense because it's the high mountain in the region that they got the word out as the uh, messenger as the. Uh, the message was transmitted up to the Jews way up in Antioch in North Syria. Um, it also was the home of one of the 24 Mishmaros of the Kohanim. But as a capital of Torah, or as a significant Torah place, as, we're about, as it's about to burst on the map in that way, um, Rav Yossi, let me just tell the story quickly. Rav Yossi then comes. Uh, they don't have a Rav. They beg him to stay. Uh, He's credited with founding this new center of Tyra, and it's remarkable because um, it's not his personality. Everybody described him as this quiet, mild-mannered man person, uh, but you know what the Mishnah says in Pirkei Avos, don't you? When you're in a place, uh, right, you're in a place where they don't have, you're not, there's no man for the job, you have to strive to be the man for the job. Uh, this, this thought occurred to me as we heard from the very eloquent speaker last week, uh, Rav Shmuel Goldstein, who was one of the survivors of the Harnuf massacre, and spoke to us. And you could tell it's not what he wanted to do in life, you know, to speak to us or to speak to anybody. It's just not his disposition. And he came to, but, but he did it because that's what you do. And he had something to say that other people can't say as well, not having been in his particular place at that time in history. So. Kaddish Baruch Hu puts us each on this planet for different uh, jobs. We have to figure out what that is, and sometimes you have to do the thing that does not come naturally to you, and that was what Rabbi Yossi does. does. Not yet. Never, until just about now. And he's the beginning of that. Who defined the Holy City? The Mekubalim of later days. This is now, this is right. Up in, if you were to ask anybody at this point in time, when Rabbi Yossi comes to Tzfat in the early 1500s, um, if you were to ask them, what are the holy cities, they might not even have a round number. They wouldn't necessarily say three holy cities. The notion of four, four being a very significant number, uh, would be a later development of the, of the Mekubalim. And you can always say that that was inevitable and predicted at the beginning of time, that there would eventually be four holy cities, but historically that only comes into being around now. Um, they would say, yeah, well, Yushalayim near Kodesh, and Hebron somewhere up there, and Tiberia becomes, becomes a primary city. Um, and now Tzfat, we're going to see, hits, hit, uh, you know, be, opens up and becomes, becomes a great place. He attracts other uh, Torah personalities. <coughs> Students include the Radbaz, Rav David Ben Zimri, who we're, who we're going to meet soon. Yeah. You want to say something before? Yeah, so that was my name before. I thought that was, so it's not a Gemara idea for Holy Cities? No. And then um, something, uh, Elazar, the, yeah, one of the son who was in the cave, right? Yes, uh, Rebbe Elazar ben Rabbi Shimon. Right, and uh, Rabbi Shimon, they were in the cave. Yes. And that cave was in spot, correct? Uh, no, the not the, the famous Gemara is Shabbos Lamed Gimel Lamed Beis. It tells the story. It doesn't give a, a precise location. <laughs> But there are other sources in the Medrash that tell us that it was in Lod. Oh. Lod it, near today's airport. So even though they mark but no, is the site where they No, the site where they mark it up in the north is not Tzfat. It's, it's um, west of Tzfat in a Druze village called Pekin. And there's a cheesy tourist sign that says, Rabbi Shimon's cave. And all the, all the trappings so that you too can feel that you've been in the place. Because people like that feeling. And it doesn't matter if it's real or not. The, um, in 1516, uh, life is about to take an interesting turn in Palestine. Palestine, which has been, well, you can say managed or mismanaged, but it's under the domain of the Mamelukes all these years. The Mamelukes capital is, they're, they're based in? Cairo. 
Cairo. They, no, Turkey is a different country. Turkey is the Ottomans. That's in the north. Cairo and, and that the area around, let's say, Egypt and what we think of as much of the Middle East today, that would be the Mamluk domain. The Ottomans uh, conquered them. Settled Turkey. Like they, I, I thought maybe the Mamluks lived in the Ottoman Empire area, and the Ottomans conquered them, and thus gained Israel off them. But I guess no, 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 not yet, not yet. So this is what this, this is the story that I'm going to tell you now. Um, the Mamluks, and you know, they hold, they have their holdings are in Palestine. There's not much in Palestine. We remember we just saw yesterday. We talked about Ravavaji Mibarthanur as, as he comes in. There's a couple of. Um, struggling Jewish communities here and there and scattered a few Muslim communities too but not much more to speak of um, the uh, Sultan Salima was on his way in 1516 I told you this story recently I think I, think I did uh, it was on his way uh, in 1516 to go fight a different battle a different war against a Persian Shah out in the far east in, in the further east but in order to get there, it's not entirely clear why he had to go through Palestine, because if you look at the map, you certainly could go by way of, uh, by, by just direct east. Um, and, uh, but in any case, he asks permission from the Mamluk regime, could, I, could we send our men by way of Palestine? And the answer from the Mamluks is no. And uh, it's not the first time in history that we hear this, where the, and this time Jews are not involved, but uh, the Sultan says, um, I don't want to. I don't want any trouble here. But if you make mischief, we'll have no problem going to war. And that's exactly what happens. And they go to war, and suddenly the Ottomans accidentally conquer Palestine. And when I say accidentally, it was not the plan, nor is it something that they particularly desired. It just happened. And okay, I'll take some land, free land, and they they acquired it. Didn't do much with it. And over the course of the next four hundred years. 401 years, uh, they have a mostly continuous rule here. We're going to see there are a few uh, important exceptions, probably most glaringly. There, uh, there's a window of time in the middle of that 400 years from 1831 to 1840 where the land is temporary con temporarily conquered by Muhammad Ali, who's based down in Egypt. Not a Mamluk at this point, it's a different regime altogether. And um, he conquers Palestine temporarily only to be won back by the Turks with the support of the various European powers. So it's not, when we talk about the Ottoman period, it's not like a continuous time of bliss, there's no bliss here, uh, it's a time of actually utter corruption and, um, and stagnation in Eretz Israel, as I'm about to explain. But he's still alive today. No, no, that would have, would have tremendous uh, longevity. This was an earlier Muhammad Ali, both names being very prominent among people who either are or are admirers of Islam, are Muslims or are the admirers of the, of the religion. Uh, now, the Jews, for their part, had in the war between the Mamluks and the Ottomans, the Mamluks were nasty. They were, they were uh, almost uniformly uh, terrible to Klal Yisrael, and the Jews, the local Jews of Palestine, were actually okay with the idea of the Ottomans coming in. Anything must be better than this. And now that the Ottomans win, they look at their, uh, their allies, the Jews, and they um, start with semi-lenient policies. They, they, they see Jewish refugees, and they start to give them um, permission to make Aliyah, to come back to Palestine. Now, we're not talking about any large numbers. The, there's not a large influx. Most Jews recognize that to live in Palestine is extremely difficult. There's almost no economy. So making it here, making any kind of pranasa here is extremely fraught and risky. The regime, the Ottoman regime, most for most of that 401 years, minus a few here and there, is utterly corrupt. It, the, the, um, it all works, how's your Arabic? Everything functions under a system of bakshish, bribery. Which officials you pay off, and you realize that a lot of the time there isn't just one official. You've got to pay off every official, especially those who are in conflict one with the other, just to placate the various uh, sides in any given ongoing issue. And it may be that you, played, you paid them last month, but next month they don't remember. So it's extremely difficult life in, in these circumstances. And now, if, just to get a picture of what's going on in Palestine in these days, and this is what more or less is the background for uh, everything before the British mandate uh, after World War I, is... Um, 
in order to maintain uh, you know, your sovereignty in a land, you need a population, and Eretz Israel is not very populous in these days, so that's a problem. You also need people to govern it. You gotta have local rulers. And so the Turks had their local rulers, they called them Effendis. You can see remnants in and around if you come to, if you come, and, uh, come to me in Telstone. So there's a, an Effendi's house on a neighboring mountaintop where some governor appointed by the Sultan back in Kushta, back in Istanbul, was sent to govern Palestine for a period of time and then left. And that was the way it was because usually what the Sultans did is they sent the Effendi and their families for a couple of years, often for much less. And then they brought them back and sent a new Effendi. And the wisdom of this kind of system was that nobody got too powerful. And the Sultans liked it that way. Since the Sultan's power was incredibly tenuous, fraught, so they weren't so happy with anybody amassing some kind of a base of support or any, any long-term kind of um, uh, uh, power structure. So they, you know, they appointed them and, and, and then moved them on. And um, if you think about that, and you start realizing why Israel becomes such a backwater, this country becomes so undeveloped, you're, offend, you're an offendee. Um, somebody insults you, I guess you get offended. The, uh, and you're sent down here, and you got a couple years. The way you look at it, this is a vacation. You're, getting, you're being sent up, you're given a, a salary. Now, with your money, you're gonna use it for yourself. Will you want to, let's say, build roads? Well, why would you bother building roads? This isn't your country. You're not staying here for any long period of time. You're just vacationing here. Uh, you would develop no infrastructure. There'd be no development. There'd be no garbage disposal. There'd be no um, development of water irrigation. Nothing. And that's the situation, more or less, in... I should also um, convey the idea that um, Palestine was actually subdivided into many smaller parts, each with its own constantly revolving effendies. So you put all that together and you have a country that's almost unlivable. Who would want to live here? Well, you know the expression in Hebrew? Um, the Jews. If you are what's called Mishugala Davar, Mishugana, if you're crazy, that's the Hebrew expression for somebody who's dedicated to the cause. Well, we're dedicated to the cause. We love our, home, our, our holy land and we always dream of returning, so then you'll come back. Uh, beyond that, not so many people. Until the late 19th century, um, the Palestinian uh, authority would not tell you this. They would deny what I'm about to say, but it's true and provable. Um, there are actually very, very few Muslims anywhere in Palestine, because why bother? Why live here? Go where there's more money. Go where there are more opportunities. They don't have the ideological connection to the land of Israel. Not the same way that Qal Yisrael does. Um, only laterally, and in and, and one of the classes that you might have missed, we, we, established, we established that statement first emerged under the, under, um, under the Ayyubids in the Middle Ages only in response to the Crusaders who suddenly found a renewed importance of the Holy Land and because it became holy to one of the other powers, the Christians in that case, is suddenly the Muslims said, hey, that's our land. As supersessionists, whatever's holy to the Jews or the Christians, they, they take it as theirs. Prior to that, we find in not, not in the Quran nor in any classic Muslim literature right. we find any significance to Palestine. Right, in Akhinami, but even that waxed and waned. Meaning that was usually only for some kind of ex a political expedient that it was important. But for example, in this period, and almost uh, this almost illustrates the point. Under the Ottomans, where there wasn't a lot of tumult, a lot of wasn't a lot of interest in the Holy Land, so the, so too it wasn't holy to them either. Now, when Jews come, ironically, all this corruption and neglect is a void that they say, okay, they don't want it, we do, and they take advantage of this um, to return in, it's not large numbers, but there are larger numbers of Jews returning than we've seen in centuries. And remember, there's been a steady trickle ever since, let's say, Rav Yudha Levi wrote the Kuzari, 
and re-inspires Klal Yisrael with the notion that you could come back and should come back. And there's been a trickle of Jews over the years, as we've, as we've seen 300 Balitosvos here, and Ramban there, and other, other individual cases of Aliyah. Uh, and now they start coming back in larger numbers, especially as you have these floating refugees who don't find any welcome society, and many of the Gedolim gravitate to Eretz HaKodesh. Obviously, the first and logical place that they'd want to go is Yerushalayim, and there is a Jewish population, you remember from the, a holdover from the days of Ravavadia, and um, the problem is that Muslims impose a heavy tax there again, that's one trick that they, that they come up with, making it almost impossible for newcomers to make it there, and there's another factor, the local Jews are not always as welcoming, <coughs> because they have a hard enough time, and it's hard to fault them. It's hard enough for them to make a living themselves. What, you want to bring in more Jews and have more competition? In an already tight economy, uh, little doesn't spread very far. So now, uh, with this in mind, um, Tiveria, we're about to see today, is going to come out as, 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 as an option in the, in the not-too-distant future, but there's not much to talk about in Tiveria anymore. It's, it's been centuries since there was an organized Jewish community there. And among the small old Jewish villages throughout the Galilee, Tzfat, which now is emerging after Rabbi Yossi of Saragossa, um, is, is an appealing option for a couple of reasons. Let's say we're imagining ourselves Spanish refugees in the early 1500s coming in. Why would you say would we maybe want to move to Tzfat? It's not yet Ira Kodesh. That's about to happen, but you know what comes first, the chicken or the egg? At this point, why would they gravitate there? Well, among other draws, is it's right across the valley from Meron, the site and the, uh, of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who, whose appeal and whose, whose story and inspiration uh, is, as we're going to describe soon, because we're about to talk about the explosion of interest in Kabbalah during this period. It's not that it's the uh, beginning of Kabbalah. Kabbalah's been in the world all of this time, but it's about to uh, go viral and break out and, uh, in a significant way. And the uh, lure of being close to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai across the valley is, is, is huge. Um, there's also, there are logistic advantages to being in Sfat. Sfat is near a number of natural water sources. Uh, you can hike down, anybody hiked in Nachal Amud, down the valley between Sfat and Meiron. And among other things, when you have natural water, it permits you to uh, have a number of industries. And in Sfat, we know one of the industries was textiles. They made, um, they made clothes, fabrics. And one of the ways of doing that is you could take advantage of the stream of water with water mills. That you can use the natural flow of the water to generate the mill. And so there are several advantages in Svat, uh, the, the, the gathering Talmud Chachamim who were there uh, to make this uh, an increasingly viable alternative. And within a couple of decades, it becomes um, one of the most important cities in, uh, for all of Klal Yisrael and eventually, as we know it, the, one of the four holy cities. From this time. The, what we call the old city in Sfat is as old as about four or five hundred years. Not much more. I mean, listen, it probably predates that too, as we keep saying, there was a tiny Jewish village there, but not much to speak of and probably not, not many remains. Um, I have some stories to tell today and some phenomena like we did yesterday. Um, I do want to introduce a few personalities from this period. Um, they are as diverse as you could imagine. Really interesting, though. And they each represent different phenomena in the Jewish world at this period, during this period. Um, we have in the one hand, we have Rav Yaakov Polak, who's not a well-known name. I'd be surprised if anybody here would have heard of him. But he's significant, and we're going to hear about him in the future. He is the, he's credited with founding a new style of learning Torah called the Pilpul style of learning. He, uh, he actually lived in Poland and Prague later on. Um, his dates are 1460 to 1541. Um, Pilpul is not what we talk, people use the term loosely today to talk about a certain rigorous analysis. That's not what this is. And in fact, his original system became almost intoxicating, almost 
It was, it, it was so exciting for people, and it caught on in a very quick way, but it was incredibly controversial and would be criticized, and we're going to hear some of the sharp criticism. Um, we don't really know what his original Peel Pool was, other than it created a huge stir. Uh, we don't have many samples that remain. The best de definition that, I, that I, I, I've understood is that it's an elaboration of sugis in the Gemara. Imagine you're learning a sugi in the Gemara, and you start taking them where your mind, where your brilliant mind can analyze them to the point that an outsider would say, oh, come on, that's not what the Gemara means. It becomes, to the outsider's view, totally twisted and convoluted, but brilliant and intriguing and fun. Sometimes where I feel in our Gemara class in the morning, where sometimes take the, people take the questioning to a really interesting level of questioning, and then I keep saying, okay, let's get back to the Gemara now. Uh, but what we're doing in class doesn't even approach what Pilpu was once upon a time. Um, the conclusions were ingenious. They had very little relevance or practical halacha, but that, of course, wasn't the point. Uh, it sharpened people's minds but didn't serve much function, and the criticism will center exactly on that point, on the fact that um, this is not what Klal Yisrael needs, as engaging as this style of learning is. But he was understood to be a big tzaddik and an anav and doing it all the shame shemaim. His name is Rabbi Yaakov Polak, and we'll hear about him again. It, on the other end of the spectrum, not a tzaddik, you have a figure by the name of Johannes Pfefferkorn. It's a name that you hear bandied about, and I'm assuming that some of you are going to be taking up our topic in history, so you'll hear it again. Pfefferkorn was a convert to uh, a Jew originally converted to Catholicism in 1504, and he becomes part of the German Catholic Dominican order, and he, like many of the... Uh, Many of the evil Jews who convert becomes the head of the movement to preach against Jews. What's un the reason why he's unusual is that um, it's not clear that he himself was the man who did it, or if, what seems to be very likely, the church used his name and he let them use his name. So they said all these, said all these lies about Judaism in the name of Pfefferkorn. Either way you have it, Pfefferkorn is an enemy. And we're going to hear why in the next, we'll talk about the next personality. Um, he worked to destroy copies of the Talmud. He wrote polemics against uh, the Jews. And one of the things, this is kind of a new time, um, his anti-Semitic polemics reveal that he didn't really know what he's talking about. In some of the earlier personalities, were Shlomo Halevi and, and, and Yeranamo, uh, these guys have been formally pretty knowledgeable about Torah, and so when they attacked Torah and Talmud, they often knew what they were talking about. Pfefferkorn, not the case. One, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, he would engage in a debate, and interestingly, a non-Jew by the name of Johann Reuchlin defended Torah and Talmud from Pfefferkorn because he was so clearly ignorant and he fabricated so much that Ruchlin was actually trying to set the record straight and Ruchlin got advice, got guidance from a great rabbinic figure <coughs> in this period who's the next figure I want to focus on. Yeah? Do you want to guess who it is? No. Oh, okay, go ahead. How could Ruchlin do that? How could the rabbinic figure advise him? Um, for the sake of Kiddush Hashem and trying to set the Torah straight, he wasn't teaching Ruchlin Torah. He was um, trying to help him defend Klal Yisrael. You can always do that, certainly with the Koch Nefesh. Um, why did he, uh, why did the uh, He was not in the position. Usually a Jew arguing his own case actually undermines his own case because everybody knows the Jew's going to say that. If you've got a non-Jew arguing your case for you, it actually is more powerful. Um, so the rabbi's name is Rav Ovadia Sforno. And the Sforno writes one of the great commentaries of all time on our Chumash. And I have to tell you, uh, a, personal, a personal aside, um, I, I, I'm partial to the Sforno. I, I spent a year just doing Sforno. And I would be learning in the base medrash, and I had this experience constantly where I would learn something and I'd get so excited whoever happened to be sitting around me at that point in the base medrash, I said, ooh, ooh, look, look. And I had to share what it was. 
You ever get that insight you can't just keep to yourself? So that was my that was my reaction to learning Sforno. So you should all be Zochim to go through the Sforno on Chumash in the course of your lifetimes. Um, Rav Avadi of Sforno has a really interesting life. He is um, in Italy. He's based in Italy. His dates are 1475 to 1550. Uh, he's a Rosh Hashiva in Bologna. Great cold cuts. The, um, he also wrote a Pirush on some aspects of Tanakh. Yeah. Um, some, that's where the name comes from. Yeah, right. Assumedly that they make it there. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's where it's associated. But I think you can find um, hamburgers outside of Hamburg. Right. And, 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 and you know you can find outside of Frankfurt as well. Frankfurt. Yes. And French fries were invented in Belgium. So. Yes, French fries in Belgium. Yeah. Yes, please. Uh, Sir Bernard, he used a lot of uh, his language gematria, right? Um, it is a lot of gematria, but I would say if you had to pick a perush that was the more... Yeah, the balaturim is really... Yeah, the balaturim is really the... You know, if you really want a great gematria or relevant uh, approach, that's the balaturim more than the sforno, certainly. The, um, we know that... Uh, Remember David Ruveni that we met yesterday? David Ruveni, the harbinger of the Messiah, so he claimed, from the tribe of Reuben, so he claimed. Um, we know that he gained audience with Rav Avadim in Rome when he visited Rome. I find it really helpful when we connect all the various personalities from this period. They were all alive, and they're all living, breathing uh, individuals. Um, we know that his perush, his perushim, his, he writes in his introduction, his purpose was to be makar of his generation. In Italy, in the 16th century, the Jews were already uh, going after the good life, and they were losing their Torah um, knowledge and values. And Ravadji writes like this, because our people dwell in an alien land and concentrate on acquiring wealth, feeling somehow their wealth will protect them, uh, they don't have enough time to consider the wonder and the wisdom of our tyrant. And uh, it's a, it's, I, I, this corner is therefore, among other um, important qualities, it's a work that you could use for for Kiruv, for uh, trying to do outreach, for trying to um, explain some of the fundaments of our tradition uh, to, 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 un, to non-believers, to, to ignorant people. Um, after he dies in 1550, we see the Italian community, this is the end of the Italian Jewish community's uh, complacency, um, harsh persecution begins. Um, pay attention to that too. Sometimes we find, uh, often we find this, that when the Jews come into their own and become assimilated in various communities throughout time, often the Kaddish Baruch sends persecution after that. And it seems perhaps there's a pattern. Maybe he's trying to tell us, you know, not to be complacent. We should be careful. The last personality for the time being I'm going to talk about, well, no, it's not true. I mean, all of these stories involve personalities, but I'm going to mention now a personality that in my Gemara class has come up many times, I mentioned this morning. Um, his name is Rabbi Yeshua Boaz. And of course, we know him as the um, footnotes all around the dot of our Gemara. So take a look. On the, on the on an average page of Gemara, you have Yeshua Boaz all over the place, literally. He's describing to you when, when a verse is quoted, um, he gives you the Torah or, uh, which is usually the older versions of the of the Talmud are simply the reference where you'd look up uh, the Pasuk, wherever it is in the Tanakh. Um, in some of the newer versions, now you have an ex special commentary decided to present to you the entire Pasuk. The Torah, the Torah or Shalem. But based on the Torah or Boaz, he, if you want to know the source of any halacha that's being discussed in the text, you find a little letter. It'll send you up to the upper outside column, the Ein Mishpat Ner Mitzvah, and that'll send you to the to the relevant source. What are the sources that, that he sends you to? The Rambam, certainly. The the Yad, the Shulchan Aruch. But before the Shulchan Aruch, also, what do we call it? His abbreviation, Tusha, Tur, and the Shulchan Aruch. Also, the smog, the smog figures there, right? Um, so that's that's um, that's the Ein Mishpat. Um, he's also the Mesor Shashas, which is on the other margin, which tells you what other Gemaras, what parallel Gemaras, or maybe the Tosefta that you'd look up if you'd want to um, reinforce your knowledge of whatever sugi you're in. But the, but the Shulchan Aruch's not here yet. So I will that this is one of his later projects? Oh, oh, no. Um, 
No, no, well, I know, I'm about to talk about this. The Shulchan Aruch, uh, no. The Shulchan Aruch goes according to the organization of the tour, which is most certainly here. So we now, because we're looking in the Shulchan Aruch, we'll, you know, we can use the tour reference to find it in the Shulchan Aruch. He writes the excellent question. You're obviously keeping track of the chronology here, but we already had the tour. Um, yeah, there are in the back. We have our commentaries. We have, for example, Rabbeinu Asher. Take a look. Up, take a look up here at the Rabbeinu Asher. Can you be with us? Okay. The Rabbeinu Asher, the Rosh, um, before this version, before Rabbi Yisroel version, the Rosh was one block of in, undifferentiated text. And as such, really hard to get through. He divides it into discrete paragraphs and sections, so you can e more easily find uh, what you're looking for. He does the same within the very back of the text with the Mordechai. Uh, ooh, this is another one of those newfangled texts, so I don't want to spend forever finding the Mordechai. Mordechai is usually near the end. Uh, also breaking it down into sections. And of course, his project is to make Gemara much more accessible and manageable by um, by students, of course, now is the time that we need to learn more than ever, and uh, we learn because of because of uh, to a large degree because of his um, his commentaries, his association. Wh why did he do what he did? Why why was he in the right place at the right time in history? He was in Italy, and do you remember what was Italy the home of? We said this yesterday. Also, in addition to pizza and good spaghetti, right? Linguini too. Um, printing press, the printing press, right? And so he was there. And because he was there at, right at the get-go when they started to print in an official way our great Talmud, so his reference guides would become uh, classics. And, and, and uh, part of the process, part of inevitably uh, is, is inseparable from the text of our uh, Gemara and printed in, in therefore every subsequent edition of the Gemara. Um, he also writes, independent of reference guides, he has his own... Um, commentary called the Shilti Giborim that he writes on the text of the Rif. That's a halachic work. Um, one famous psaki, he, he has several, but one famous psak in the Shilti Giborim, um, he writes the earliest hetter that we know of for shaitals. Women wearing, covering their hair uh, with, with um, a wig with something that looks like hair. He's lenient. Many other authorities are not. He says it's an, it works. It's an adequate head cover. A, a wig. Mm -hmm. Now, he only lives long enough. He works on um, all of Shas, but only his first publication, uh, he's alive to see the publication of Vesechus Kiddushin. And none of the other, Baruch Hashem, they, after he died, they preserved, they preserved the other, uh, his works, and we have them, but he never saw them in publication. And... Um, before he died, Pope Julius III banned publication of the Talmud in 1553. And so it brought the whole process to a temporary halt. And he died, he died four years later. And eventually, when they reprint the Talmuds, they take his emendations and incorporate them. These are the days of the smicha renewal. And here's the story that I have anticipated. Um, Remember the story of Smicha is the story of our Messiah that Moshe Rabbeinu was the first Musmach he received Smicha from Hashem. He gave it to the Skenim and to Yeshua and all the way down to Marbaravashi. But long before the end of the Talmud, the Romans had destroyed Smicha. No more individual Smicha. And then we've seen over the ages the need to use titles like Rav and Rebbe as a way of establishing legitimate Talmudic Chachamim and distinguishing them from the, uh, from the phonies or from the people who, who really shouldn't assume the title. Why are there so many people that whose name or rabbi or whatever well, that's the problem. That's the problem. It's not something that you can completely control in the world. Since we don't have a central address of Torah, um, and, and rabbinic authority in general is um, challenged in our anti-authoritarian times, is exactly our, the dynamic today. There are a lot of people who use the term rabbi or rabbi, as Rav Moshe Feinstein uh, likes to say. Anybody knows what I'm talking about. Um, there are a lot. Anybody can brandish a title nowadays. You just hang out a shingle and call yourself a rabbi. You can get away with it. 
Um, but there's an attempt, that's one of the reasons why people say, well, who do you have smicha from? Is it a recognized authority? We don't have smicha nowadays. The Rambam has a very interesting statement on the subject of smicha. He says it's gone, no, no longer exists. But he says, if I'm quoting, all Chochmah Yisrael, all the wise men of the Jewish people, and of course, who, where, where would they be located? Only in Eretz Yisrael. You can only start something up again in Eretz Yisrael. The Sanhedrin will restart in Eretz Yisrael. The Nasi will be reappointed in Eretz Yisrael. The base of Mikdash will be rebuilt in Eretz Yisrael. If all of the wise men of Yisrael would unanimously agree to ordain, to ordain a judge or judges, then they would get together and create a new musmach, somebody with smicha, who would then indeed possess all the full authority of the original ordained judges, indicating that there is a way of starting this again anew, from scratch, and recreating official smicha, not what we have nowadays. What we have nowadays uses the name smicha, but it's not really smicha. So the Rambam writes, uh, many understand the Rambam as theoretical, since the Rambam himself ends with the expression, this needs further inquiry, which indicates when people use that expression, it indicates, I'm not quite sure about this, or I don't know how this is going to map out realistically in halacha. So he lays the groundwork for this project without actually fleshing it out. And um, I'm going to now introduce the next figure that's part of this, the drama that unfolds around smicha. His name is the, um, the Mahari Beirav, uh, Rav Yaakov Beirav, who is also, you know, as many of, the, many of the great Jews in this time, one of the Spanish, one of the Sephardi exiles. His dates are 1475 to 1541. When he was exiled from Spain, um, he went to Fez, Morocco, and the next year, when he was 18 years old, he was appointed the Rav of Fez, Morocco. So you're talking about somebody who's a, who's a big deal. He becomes the official Rav at the, age, at the old age of 18. How old are you all? 18. Okay. You ready for take on Fez, Morocco? Go ahead. Um, in 1538, he comes, he's, he's since moved to Eretz Yisrael and to Tzfat drawn by the increasing uh, godless tzfat, and he decides he wants to renew smicha, based on this Rambam. Why? He writes, it's all Hashem Shemayim. Why should we start smicha now? Why? What's going on? See, one of the advantages, if you have legitimate smicha, you can do something very significant. You can reinstitute legitimate makos. Malkos, Diraisa. Without smicha, there's, you could simulate Malkos, you could beat anybody up you want to, but it's not legitimate Malkos. And as we see in the third parak of our Masechta, of Malkos, of Malkos this year, um, potentially, when, when done correctly, Malkos, administered, can replace the punishment of Karis. That's good. Meaning, I'll take that any day. If a person's going to have to get kares, which means the soul dies, among other things, uh, much better to get malkos. And these are the days that a lot of Jews have sinned, especially conversos and other people forced by the Inquisition to betray themselves, and yet are sincerely penitent and want to make full tshuva, don't want to suffer the eternal blight of kares, and therefore would like to get malkos diraisa to replace them. And in order to do that, you need smicha. And the, the, the Rav Yaakov Beirav was motivated to do this. Uh, he wants them to have kapara. He also recognizes if we could start smicha again, you know, this could be a harbinger of the final messianic era. And of course, these are all, the, the, the times are very, are very messianic as we explained yesterday. Um, he teaches this and he gathers together 25 chachamim uh, who now are, are, are living in Svat. And they give him smicha. And they represent the majority of the sages in Eretz Israel at the time. Um, he, in turn, gives it to four of the prominent Chachamim who gave it to him. Now that he's a musmach, he can be masmich, he can confer smicha. And the first two people he gives it to are Rav Yosef Karo 
and Rav Moshe Ditrani, who Rav Moshe Karol has recently made Aliyah from Turkey, and he gets smicha from the, uh, the Rav Yaakov Beirav. Yeah. Good question. He has 25, and that's one of the kashas. Good question. Apparently, the numbers were such they didn't have 100. He had 25. That's what he did. Good question. I told you this was not a simple story. This is a controversy. Uh, meanwhile, Rav Yosef Karel would eventually give it to Rav Moshe Alshech, the Alshech, one of the four Kedosh, uh, the Alshech of Kadosh. Um, the Alshech gives smicha to Rav Chaim Vital. One of the four. And the Alshech of Kadosh. Yeah, those are the four Achronim. Because the, uh, the Tanaim, who's called the Kadosh, we saw here, Rebbeinu HaKadosh, Rebbe. Yeah. Yes, Orchaim is an Achron, we haven't met him yet, we're going to. So the, um, some say a total of 10 people receive smicha, many of them are not names that we, we know very well. Um, there are a lot of conflicting accounts on this subject, it doesn't matter. Because the whole thing blows open to a major machlokis. Down in Jerusalem is living another great Rav from this time. His name is Rav Yaakov Ibn Chaviv, and I should backtrack just for a moment to tell you why he's such a great Rav. Rav Yaakov Ibn Chaviv, uh, excuse me, not Rav Yaakov, his son Rav Levi Ibn Chaviv. Rav Yaakov Ibn Chaviv and his son were exiled <laughs> from Spain, from Zamora, Spain. They went to Portugal, and what happened in Portugal, of course? They were exiled again, remember this, you remember the story? But in Portugal, and I alluded to this, little Levi, the son, uh, who, was only, who was only 12 years old, seemed to have been, well, there's a question about what happened, but the, it seems that he was forced to be baptized. And he wasn't yet bar mitzvah. And that's why it's not his fault. He didn't have das. Remember how they forcibly baptized the kids. Anyway, he, um, his opponents would use this against him. You were baptized. You have, you, you have no position as a Rav, they argued. Um, he said, I do. I was passive, which made me anus. It's not my fault. That's kind of a ridiculous Okay. That's how people argued once upon a time. The, say it again. Anusim. The, the converses were called anusim. What? You remember In Right, they were Anuso. They were against their will. The uh, <clears throat> the family flees to Salonika and then and then um, eventually Rav Yaakov dies having written part of his great manuscript and his legacy. What's his legacy, of course, Rav Yaakov? Rav Yaakov Ibn Chaviv leaves us the Ein Yaakov, one of the great commentaries on Agadita, that he co-writes with his son, Rav Levi. And the two of them are credited as having created this masterpiece, uh, collection of commentaries on Agadita, from the, on, on the Gemara, and... Um, Rav Levi later moves to Yerushalayim in 1523, and that brings us up to date. He becomes the Chacham Bashi two, two years later in 1525. Um, Rav Levi, I should tell you, comes up all the time in Halacha. I happen to be going through the Shulchan Aruch, and I'm holding in Choshen Mishpat right now, and I can't tell you how many uh, times he's quoted. As just a major posek, he writes tshuvas. Uh, he's influential <laughs> till today. Um, for example, there's a question about procedure, the procedures for observing Purim on Shabbos, which was not a question through most of history because most of the time um, Purim doesn't only happens on Shabbos if you lived in a walled city from Yerushua bin Nun and since there weren't so many Jews in Yerushalayim over the ages we don't have so much literature and Rav Yaakov uh, writes about, Rav Levi excuse me, writes about that um, he also has a whole tshuva where he talks about um, setting the date of the correct Shemitah year and Rav Yaakov Beirav up in Sfat knows that the Rav Levi is down in Yerushalayim, and he, he sends him a message with an offer that he will give him smicha too, that they've started the smicha process back up, and they recognize the godless of the co-author of the Yaakov, and they'd like to give him smicha. 
And Rabbi Levi's response is to say, no, and the whole project is null and void. I don't accept this. And when he says this, uh, that has meaning and weight. And the whole thing blows open into a major conflict and controversy where the different people took different sides. Yes, smicha, no smicha. Both sides were motivated in Shem Shemaim. What is Rav Le- I, I explained Rav Yaakov Beirav's position and what his motivation was. Rav Levi argued like this. <laughs> the whole thing is invalid. Don't forget the Rambam had left it as a tzarech iyun. It's theoretical. It's not practical. He said, even according to you, Rav Yaakov Beirav, you need all the rabbis in Eretz Yisrael, a hundred of them, not 25, and you've neglected, a rove is not enough, and certainly you, you've ignored all the, all the rabbis in Jerusalem. Uh, eventually, because they, they can't resolve the issue among themselves, they send down to Egypt, where another great Jew is living. Um, the Radbaz lives in Egypt, and um, he weighs in and ultimately intervenes and sides with Rav Levi in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the matter is still unresolved until finally um, it effectively dies when Rav Yaakov Beirav dies in Sfat in 1541. The whole thing blows over. We know that till today almost none of the Musmachim ever refer to Smith in their writings. So clearly it didn't make an impact. Didn't really happen. The Mechaber, for example, himself states several times that we lack smich in our days. So clearly he didn't take it seriously. He's writing that long after this whole episode blew over. Um, the term Maran literally means, as it's used widely today incorrectly, it literally means Mosayim Rabbanim Nismach from 200 rabbis we have smicha. Mosayim Rabbanim Nismach. Uh, whether it's 100, 200, uh, not 25, um, the Beit Yosef is often on his tomb, it says, Maran HaBeit Yosef. If he had the smicha, I guess on some level, maybe there's legitimacy to the title. Today the term is used very broadly, not literally. Where's he buried in Maran Yosef is most certainly in Svat. Oh, okay. Yeah. Are all the Jews buried in Svat? Yeah. Um, Donna Grazia Mendes Nasi is one of the interesting women of history. Her dates are 1510 to 1569. She is, talking about one of the wealthiest women of Renaissance Europe. She was born in Lisbon in Portugal to a family that was, they were conversos, they were forcibly converted during the Portuguese expulsion in 1497. But the family was, she was born 13 years later. Um, Kaddish Baruch Hu sent her um, a gift. She happened to marry very well into a banking empire, and then her husband died while she was still young, so that's why she became so wealthy. That's how Kaddish Baruch Hu planned it, and uh, it turned out that the money fell into the right hands. She was a major tzedekis, a very righteous woman who used her money to help Klal Yisrael. Listen to this. A, one of her great early claims to fame, she, with her resources and her connections and, and her vast wealth, developed an entire escape net network in Spain, in, 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 uh, in, in, uh, in France, and going over the Alps, over into, into the area of today, Switzerland and, and Germany. She, she wound up through her network saving hundreds of conversos from the Inquisition. People fled by way of her network. What was a network? It meant, it meant that she had people, staff, food provided, and, and, and the, all the logistic accoutrements to provide escape for these poor, desperate refugees. Um, she was a big balas chesed. There were programs of learning Torah that she supported. She, she um, supported Torah communities and individuals. She did vast acts of chesed. Um, she, was, she had a major hand in publishing some of the great <laughs> Jewish, Jewish works from this time, including the Shulchan Aruch. And then they threw her into prison. Uh, the Venetian Republic said, what was her crime? She was guilty, found guilty, charged. You should all be uh, charged as, as, uh, um, as, as, as implicated for Judea, Judea, Judaizing others. Another wealthy, powerful Jew by the name of Dan Yosef Nossi appealed to this Turkish Sultan, Suleiman. We're going to hear about Suleiman the Magnificent. Uh, Suleiman who comes and builds the walls around today's old city. Um, he appeals to Suleiman to um, help this woman, this great woman, and redeem her. And Suleiman does. And of course, the Suleiman has 
of an ulterior motive. His goal, of course, he wants her to move her banking interests to Turkey. And she does. Um, now, Don Yosef is the next interesting figure. First, one thing he does is he marries Dona Grazia's daughter, who becomes her son-in-law. He's also won the trust of his sultan of Turkey through his, through his uh, inter, 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 intervening, and he becomes an advisor. Um, in fact, Suleiman's son is Selim, who's the next sultan, and he makes Yosef a duke and an influential military statesman. In fact, one of his credits, this has huge impact in history till today, he's, it was his move. He influenced Turkish, the Turkish conquest of the island of Cyprus. Anybody know about the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean? Cyprus, until today, is split between the Turks and the Greeks. That was partly his doing back in the 16th century. It's pretty northern Cyprus, pretty hostile. Very hostile, yeah. Yeah. In 15, and here's the last point that's significant. Dona Gracias and her nephew, Don Yosef. Don, obviously, is in the, as a title of... Uh, of importance, of, uh, it's a term of honor. In, 15, in 1558, the Sultan is interested in populating the barren land of Eretz Israel, and he provides the, Dona Gracia and her son-in-law, Don Yosef, with a long-term lease in the one-time holy city of Tiberia that's lying in ruins. And they take the opportunity. Now, how are you going to, you know, it's very nice that you have the lease on the land, but now you need a population. And, hold on, let me, I'll tell you the story. It's 1558. He gives them the long-term lease in Tiberia. Um, meanwhile, just at this time, and I'm connecting dots of things I've said, remember what happened after Rabbi Vadia Sforno uh, dies? The Italian community start, the persecution start. And indeed, just at that time, in 1556, 26 Jews from Ancona were burned by the, burned at the stake by Pope Pope Paul the, the fourth, and many other Jews are fleeing the Papal States, that area of, of, of uh, Italy, and they need a new home. And they connect with Dona Gracia and Don Yosef, and they're sent to Tiveria. And it's the beginning of the modern yeshuv in, of Jewish-Jewish community in Tiveria. Unfortunately, even though the lease is long-term, the community doesn't last very long. They're only there for a few years and wind up leaving because of the hostility from the Arab neighbors. What's significant about it is it's, it's, it's a precedent for future land acquisitions of Jews in the Holy Land, and people will often refer back to this being a treaty as something that was potentially in everybody's interest. You know, the, the Ottoman Empire has an interest of sending a population down to hold fort in the land, and of course the Jews have an increasing interest in, in returning to Eretz HaKodesh. Two last personalities for today. I've mentioned them both. One is the Radvaz, Rav David ben Shlomo, Ibn Abizimri, one of the great Jews. Um, some say he lived as long as 110 years. His dates are unclear. Either way, he had a long life. Um, he was 13 years old when he was exiled from Spain. Eventually, the family, like many, I said, he was a student of Yossi Saragossa, and he settled in Sfat. For reasons we're not quite sure about, in 1517 he moved to Morocco and then later in later to Cairo. And Cairo, he really becomes a gadol. And I mentioned the Rebaz was one who intervened in the whole smicha controversy. Um, he becomes the Chacham Bashi and he serves there for 40 years. He was wealthy, he was a merchant. Uh, the Rebaz writes some of the great works. He writes a commentary on the Mishnah Torah. He writes many other works. Um, I'll tell you some of his famous Piskei Halacha. He's the first to, to come to Eretz Yisrael and to see the area of the Dome of the Rock that's been standing there now for almost a millennium. And um, he poskins that that rock is the rock, is the Evan Shusia. And most poskim accept that. Um, that's not clear. How could he know and how could he? He didn't have the, uh, the, the Afer of the Paraduma. It's not clear how he, how he assessed this. Okay. No. No. Wait, there are a lot of Haredi rabbis that come to No. Wait, No. How? Not our topic right now. And since I want to talk about the red bars and I want to talk about the machaber today, well, you'll put this one off. Make a note. So when? I'll email you. Tomorrow, you email me or ask me random questions tomorrow. Okay. The uh, yeah, it's wrong. Okay. The um, the red bars 
I mentioned before also, he's the lenient view that accepts Karaite Bali Tshuva, as long as they affirm the authority of the rabbis in Das Taira, uh, and therefore you can marry them. That's a psaac that's accepted by Ravad Yosef and most Sephardi posting today. The Ashkenazim don't, don't agree. Um, while in Egypt, he has famous students. One of them is Shita Mekubetzit. The other one is a figure by the name of the Arizal. He's one of the Arizal's rebbies. When he was 90, he retires. He divides his fortune among the local Talmud Chachamim in Egypt and the poor, and then he moves back to Tzfat, and that's where he dies. Rav Yosef Karo, um, his dates are 1488 to 1575. Anybody's thinking about it? See if that means anything to you? Um, very good. You're sharp. Good catch. I did, but... Given the, um, let's say, the high instance of space out that tends to afflict people in the late afternoon, I'm impressed that you, you got it. Very good. And we're going to talk about why 87 is important with Rios of Caro. He was born in Toledo in Spain. Uh, when he was four years old, he and his family are part of the expulsion. I mean, for me, I don't know about you, when we actually meet some of these great figures, we say, oh yeah, he was part of the expulsion. Yeah, he, they, they were exiled. Yeah, they lost everything. They had to go to, they had to, go to exile. I'm realizing it's not just a bunch of nameless, faceless individuals. These are some of the great lights of Jewish history, uh, you know, left with nothing, bereft. And in the case of the Cairo family, they moved to Turkey. Uh, it was in Turkey. I, I corrected myself yesterday that I met Rav Shlomo Mocho and learned Kabbalah with him. In 1536, he left Turkey and moved to Tzfat. And therefore, just a couple years there, that's when he got smicha from Rav Yaakov Beirav. In Svat, he becomes the Marid de Asra, meaning the master of the place. It's a Talmud turn. And um, he becomes the Rav of Eretz Yisrael eventually. His great work, the Beit Yosef, by his own account, he minimized the Shulchan Aruch. He, he says it's, everything was in the Beit Yosef. It was published in 1550. Um, not even his chuvos. The only reason the Shulchan Aruch, you have to realize this, becomes the prominent work that it is, is because of the background of the Beit Yosef. It becomes more prominent because it's the accessible code that everybody uses till today. But, uh, right, it's not, it's, it's, it's only accepted as a bottom line because anybody who knows more than just the bottom line halacha recognizes the, the, the godless of the author as brought to you through the Beit Yosef, what is he doing? The Beit Yosef effectively um, take, is the encyclopedic. It, it has a mastery of all of Shas, talks about the various halachas that come up in the sugya as they're discussed in the major Rishonim, as we've been talking about really this entire class. We talked about the three Amudim, the three pillars he, he determines halacha from. Of course, they are in chronological order the Rith, the Rambam, and the Rush. Um, I said it's, if it's two to one, he goes with the two. It's not an actual science. In fact, it happens not infrequently that um, he'll postulate like the Rambam against the majority. Sometimes it's two to one, but the one is the Rambam, and, and the Mahabra often goes with the Rambam. For sure. When you're learning in Kolel, and you learn in, um, you know, Halacha in Kolel, which is the standard, that's the norm, um, you learn the Tur, and you learn the Beit Yosef, and the Bach, and the Darke Moshe, and the major commentaries in the tour, the Prish and Drisha. The, um, sometimes you remember he has a secondary five. Anybody remember the name, who are the secondary five Rishonim that he rely on? Quickly, we said the Ramban, the Rashba, the Ran, that's the Sephardi contingent, and then the Mordechai and the Smag for the Ashkenazim. Um, many think it, it's such a phenomenal achievement. Many feel that he could not have done it on his own, um, but that he was helped by the angel called the Magid Mesharim, who helped complete it. The Rav Chaim Vital writes that uh, it was kind of Ruach HaKodesh that, that Rav Yosef Karo had. Um, the Shulchan Aruch, I'm going to go a couple minutes late, my apologies. The Shulchan Aruch was originally published 13 years after the Beit Yosef in 1563. Listen to this. Do you know that he part of his original design was to publish it as what we call it a pocket book, a pocket edition? Um, actually, that came out a little bit later. Um, written in 30 increments, divided the entire work divided into 30 units, so that every common Jew would review each unit every day of the month, every month. 
That was his goal, and the purpose was halachic um, knowledge. People should, have, should, people should be halachically proficient and know how to lead their daily lives. That's one of the reasons he chose the tour. The tour focuses not on all of halacha, which could be too overwhelming like the Rambam does, but rather on the halacha necessary to live life in the Gullus. Go ahead. There, there probably is a pocket edition to that. Like, you probably have a pocket edition. There probably is, but it, it, what you'll, well, I'm going to describe why that's just not relevant anymore. You just can't do that. You can't do it? Yeah. Um, it, it, it's both a success and an utter failure on its own terms. The failure is not a failure. You're about to hear, but um, what happens is because of the printing press, printed, supported by Donna Grazia and others, uh, because of the printing press, it spreads rapidly becoming a staple feature of any Jewish library all over the world and would almost overnight generate huge discussion and the discussion would generate commentaries and complications making its study unintentionally time-consuming, <laughs> meaning you can't just stop by learning the bottom line of the Mechaber, you had to then analyze it. And therefore, it's impossible to get through it in any practical, halachic way without learning it in all of its depth and breadth, which is why it's more the, it's more the stuff of kolel intensive study than it is of the average Am Haaretz Jew who's going, to, uh, who's going to pick it up you know, five minutes a day for 30 days. That's not, that's not, not going to be uh, effective. Um, some of the critics, because there are critics, just like they're, you know, some of our great works were not universally embraced at the time. Some of the critics said they saw it as the end of scholarship. It was the ultimate and bottom line simplified halacha, and they said this is going to end people thinking deeply about Torah, which is what Torah is about. Uh, people would lose interest in rigorous learning, but it actually does the opposite because. What it does is provide a solid foundation where beforehand there was a lot of confusion. It actually is not the end of scholarship, it's the beginning of scholarship. It'll stimulate massive analysis. It's the opposite of what people feel, what people, what people uh, feared. It, again, anybody else, for anybody else, this would be their uh, work of, work of uh, masterpiece, but for him it was just one of many works. He also writes the Kesef Mishnah that I just referred to this morning in, in Gemara Shir uh, on, on the Mishnah Torah. Um, there's another major commentary around this time uh, on, the Mishnah, on the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam called the Lechem Mishnah that was written by Rav Avraham de Boton, um, who, was, who was lived between 1545 and 1588, a younger contemporary, uh, and he died at, uh, um, at the age of 43 in a plague. So the Lechem Mishnah is very significant. Um, the the Mechaber's, one of his other great works is, I mentioned before, is the Magid Meisharim, which this is, you know, we picture the Mechaber as being a source of halacha, and therefore we don't always associate him with, with mysticism, and, 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 but you know, he was a great Kabbalist. And this book, for example, covers, he writes about 50 years of nightly visits from this Magi, from this heavenly voice, who learned with him. Uh, the Chida tells us, the Chida who's kever we just stood by last week, at the beginning of this week, uh, tells us that only one-fifth of the Magid Mishai manuscript was published. We don't know what happened to the rest of it, but we'd certainly like to find out. Um, it all starts on a Leil Shavuos when the Magi tells uh, tells him and his chavrusa, Rav Shlomo Alkabetz, the author of Lechadodi, um, that, uh, and it was Rav Alkabetz who writes about this, that they should learn um, all night. It's actually the source of Leil Tikkun, of learning all night long. It was designated for the second night of, uh, of Shavuos, of Chagmat and Taira. Um, they darshan when the Mechaber dies from a pasuk in Mishle, Rosho Keser Paz, his head is crowned with gold, Paz, of course, being Gematria 4, 87. And that was his life, 87. Wow. So that's our sheer and full circle.